0: If you pay attention, you know that there are many messages that come at us every day from every way uh, that tell us that what life is, is supposed to be about. There are Gospels, if you will, good news from the world saying, basically, if you want to sum it up, that, that the good news of the world is your best life now. That, that, that if you really want to be happy, If you really want to experience joy and satisfaction, that you need to to be in control of your life. And that you need to to get everything that you can out of this life right now. And that comes to us from all different arenas. We heard it in the most uh, recent uh, political campaigns. The idea is that that poverty and powerlessness were tragedies to, to overcome. We heard it from both the right and the left. And that... That, that money, either amassing much or distributing to all, and power, either possessing or distributing to all, that, that that is where happiness is going to come from. We hear messages from politicians, from artists, from athletes, from pastors, all basically saying, if you want to be happy, that you need to be in control, and that you need to to just get as much out of this life as you can right now. But it's into that that message that the Word made flesh enters. Jesus, who comes to proclaim a different gospel. A gospel that is not of this world, but a gospel that comes from heaven. Heaven comments, as it were, and declares into the darkness light and says, actually, that good news is not good news at all. It's actually a word that produces slavery. Slavery to circumstance. But there is a better way. And His name is Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who establishes His own kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness that reflects the values of heaven. And this morning as we come to Luke chapter 6, we are going to learn more about what is this kingdom of God and what does it mean to be citizens of God. His kingdom. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you would turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 12 through 49. So I hope you packed a lunch. 12 through 49. I haven't preached in many moons, so we'll be here all day. Just kidding. Don't intend to do that to you. It's going to be page 862. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles provided for you in front of you there. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 49. The big idea that we'll consider this morning that I think comes out of of this text is that the citizens of Jesus' kingdom are blessed uniquely, they love curiously, and they judge because judgment is coming. I'll say that again for you. The citizens of Jesus' kingdom are blessed uniquely, they love curiously, and they judge because judgment is coming. Now, that big idea comes mostly from a sermon that Jesus preaches here in our text this morning. It's in verses 20 down through 49, but but we left off last time in verse 11, so we're going to We're going to go through pretty quickly verses 12 down through 19 and just see what's leading up to this sermon that Jesus gives about His kingdom and what it means to be citizens in it. First, we're going to notice here in chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, that Jesus called the apostles. Jesus called the the apostles. Verse 12, In these days He, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, He called His disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then he lists out the names of them. Verse fourteen: Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now we're going to learn much more about these guys and about Jesus and his. His prayer life. And I do just want us to notice here that before Jesus selected these apostles, that he spent the entire night in prayer. Now, this idea of Jesus praying shows about ten times through Luke. It's actually a major theme, and because it shows up so much, we're going to spend more time on it later. But I just think it's important for us to notice here that, that Jesus was the God-man. And as, the, as a man, he knew that he needed wisdom from the Father that from among his disciples, he wanted to know who the Father would have as as the apostles. Now, just in case you're not real clear on the difference between disciples and apostles, so a disciple is a follower of Jesus. It's one who listens to him and learns from him and seeks to imitate him through faith. So all Christians are disciples. But among those disciples, he chose some to be apostles. These were men who were uniquely called and uniquely commissioned by Jesus personally this is why the apostle Paul would also fit into uh, this category as, as an apostle so not all disciples are apostles but all apostles are disciples if you want to talk about that more I'm happy to help you do that later these men um, they will preach his gospel and they're going to plant his church and these are ordinary men their brothers, their fishermen, their tax collectors. And ten of these men will end up being murdered for their devotion to Jesus. One of them, John, will die of old age, and one, Judas of Iscariot, will betray him for, for a pocketful of change. We'll learn more about the apostles as we go along. Next thing I want us to notice here is that Jesus healed crowds. Look at verse 17 through 19. He, Jesus, came down with them. So he got his disciples, called the apostles, and he came down with them and he stood on a level place, in a plain as it were, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came near to him, or came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed. He healed them all. Again, we see this, these healings of Jesus all the way through the Gospels, so we'll, we'll comment on those many more times through, through our study in the Gospel of Luke. But I, I think it's important right here to remember the primary reason He did these healings. The primary reason he did these sorts of miracles. Certainly he had compassion on the broken, but his miracles had an even greater purpose, which was to affirm his authority. To prove that he's got the authority to claim the things that he's going to claim. Because what he's about to do in this sermon that's to follow is he's about to put everybody's worldview on blast. He's about to say basically everything you've ever learned about life is wrong, and I want you to tell—I want to tell you what heaven says. He's going to do a bit of correcting here, and Luke wants us to focus on on this message, which is what we're going to do now. So we're going to see that Jesus called the apostles, he healed the crowds, and then Jesus preached to the people. Now. One of the things that's important to understand about Jesus and his ministry, because sometimes you may may read through this here here in a moment and say, that sounds a whole lot like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, but it sounds a whole lot different than the Sermon on the Mount as well. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Oh no. Well, I just want to encourage you to remember something about Jesus. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He moved from city to city and town to town and place to place, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And very often, he would use similar themes. In the same way, if I travel and, and teach somewhere else, um, I will very often take pieces from sermons that I've preached here, or intend to preach here, and I'll use portions of that elsewhere. It um, doesn't have to do with originality, necessarily. For me, it does. For Jesus, it didn't. Um, but, it, but this is just what Jesus did. So to see themes show up in the Sermon on the Mount, and what many call here the Sermon on the Plain, For them to be similar, but for, for there to be differences, should cause no alarm at all. It should just say he's talking to different people in a different situation. And he's highlighting different realities. Now, why is he teaching what he's about to teach here? Well, corrective and perspective. Corrective, Jesus is going to correct much of the misunderstanding about what life is about that they've gotten from philosophers of the day and also from the religious leaders of the day who were misguiding the people. But then he's also going to come to give a perspective that, that the kingdom of God is it's not natural thinking. As we read through the things we're about to read through, there's going to be a lot of stuff that you're going to go like, really? That's because what Jesus does is he comes and he flips everything upside down as it were which, as John Henderson pointed out yesterday as we were talking about this, which is actually right side up. See, the the curse twists everything and makes everything actually upside down in God's world, and Jesus comes as the light to shine into the darkness to show actually the way that it's really supposed to be. So in this sermon on the plain to these disciples and many who had just been healed, Jesus is going to say... Many things, but we're going we're gonna to link them up into three big ideas that walk through this, this sermon here. In 20 through 26, he's going to say, Blessing is not what it seems. Blessing is not what it seems to be. Then in 27 through 42, he's going to say, Heaven's love is unnatural, it's supernatural. Heaven's love is unnatural. It's supernatural. And then 43 through 49, that we should judge one another because judgment is coming. That we should judge one another because judgment is coming. So let's get, let's get this sermon started here. Verse 20, Blessing is not what it seems. Verse 20. He, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are blessed For so their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. In these verses here Jesus tells the crowd the blessing is not always as it seems. And you're going to notice here there's four four pairs, right? Or four four sets here. No, there's two things that are repeated four times each, however that is. He says blessed here four times, repeated by woe four times. This idea of blessedness according to Jesus is the idea of of true happiness, a true deep real, lasting happiness over and against the woe which is a declaration of judgment a true, deep, real lasting terror and trouble that comes because of the judgment of God and what Jesus is saying in these these verses here is that if you're poor in the world but you have Jesus you are blessed and if you are wealthy in the world but you don't have Jesus You're actually cursed. Now this message would have been particularly potent for all the people who are there. Do you remember everybody who's there? It's a bunch of people who are broken, who are outcasts, who've just gotten healed, who know their weakness, who've been overlooked by the system and by society. And these words are coming, they're coming like honey to the ear. This is good news for them in a world where they have been trampled upon where they have been dominated by religious oppression and social oppression. Where they have been defenseless. Jesus says, well, there's good news for you. Now, something that's really important to note, to note here. You see it both in verse 20 and in verse 22. He is speaking to his disciples. People who are following him. And he's speaking to people who are going to suffer these things on account of the Son of Man. The reason that's so important to point out is because this is not a general statement about the poor and the afflicted getting their due someday. This is a statement about the fact that in Jesus' kingdom, things are not always as they seem now or in the world to come. And what he's giving them who are suffering on account of following him is a truth that they can hold on to no matter what else they are going to lose for following him. He says to them, verse 20, when you you lack resources, yet you keep trusting in Jesus, just remember you're not going to be poor forever. He would say to um, the Christian brother that uh, I met in Istanbul uh, about a, a year ago who had been chased out of Syria by ISIS, and he said, ISIS is probably living in my house right now. He would say to that brother, you will not be homeless forever. He promises riches that don't rust and treasures that can't be taken. Jesus promises to take us to a land where gold is going to be pavement and pearls will be the door jams of his kingdom. But even today, for those who are part of the kingdom of God by faith in Christ, you know him. You know that you're loved by him. The Spirit enlightens you to His Word, which the Bible says is worth more than silver or gold. Blessed are those who are poor. Also, blessed are you who are hungry now. You lose your job because you follow Jesus and you wonder how you're going to feed your family, or you're in a North Korean labor camp where you fight rats for scraps. Because of your testimony of Jesus. Jesus says though you hunger now. He's going to take you to a land. Flowing with milk and honey. Where there is the marriage supper of the lamb. Where you will feast in glory forevermore. With the Lord Jesus. And even today there is satisfaction that he gives. Even as your belly growls. He wants to remind you that sin's. Supper is a mirage. And that His joy is your portion. So do not lose heart when you suffer on account of His name. But remember verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That means is to follow Jesus means that you will most normally not be in the cool crowd. It's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. Eventually, it's going to cost you something. In reality, it costs you everything. But you get Him back. And that's why He can say in verse 23, it's not ludicrous to say, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. He can say to the slaves who had their wives and their children sold before their eyes. He can say to the Nigerian wife whose husband is murdered in front of them by Boko Haram while they cried out to Jesus for help. He can say to them, your pleas were not in vain. God's people are treated like that in this age. But take heart because heaven hears and there's a day coming soon when the Lord Jesus will return and He will raise your fallen one who trusted in the Lord Jesus. And you will dance together for joy with the King forevermore in a land where there will be no more crying or tears or pain. He wants our perspective to be right. Because that's not the gospel of the world. That's why he, he tells us here that not everybody's story is as hopeful. One day tables will be turned and justice will be served. And those who oppress will be afflicted by the righteous hand of God. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Woe. To you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. He's not just a word here against all rich and all wealthy, but there is a predominant theme in history that very often the wealthy and the full and the carefree and the popular have gained that at the cost of others. And they seem to very often be above justice. They seem to be able to find lawyers who can get the charges dropped. They seem to be able to have resources to be able to pay off the right people. They seem to know the people who can help them out. They seem to be able to have influence to be able to escape justice. We all know that. I to the NFL, and as soon as I see somebody is in charge for some kind of bad deal that would put the rest of us behind bars for a long time, I'm always assuming that guy will be ready for the season. Somehow, they're going to find a way out. Well, Jesus says here that there is a day when all of that will cease. And woe will fall appropriately. Appropriately. Now, before we move on to the next part about love, I just want to—I want us to note something here. Did you catch what he said there in verse 26? Woe to you when all people speak well of you. It might not actually be the best thing for your eternal good for everybody to like you, right? So, so, so don't make it your aim. To gather the praise and the applause of men. Because chasing people's approval is a deadly trap, because it will lead you to compromise your love for God. You you can't have the approval of man and the approval of the Almighty enduringly. Sure, there's times where there's a little bit of both. But I just want us in an age where we love ourselves so much. And we love our image and what people think about us so much. To be very careful of the continual temptation to compromise on truth in order to be received. Jesus would say, if you make those compromises, woe to you. He would say in this first part of his sermon, as you follow Jesus, remember the blessing is not always as it seems in his kingdom. But know that He will make all things right one day. So blessing isn't always what it seems. And secondly here, verse 27-36, through Heaven's love is quite unnatural. Heaven's love is unnatural. Verse 27, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. (laughs) This love that Jesus prescribes for his people right here is unnatural. Because when somebody hurts you, what do you want to do? What's your natural response? Oh, yeah? I'm going I'm to Facebook bomb you. I'm going to put some dirt on you there. Right? You want to hurt them. Or if you're more passive aggressive, you really hope somebody else is going to hurt them. But there's ill will in your heart toward that person. It is natural to loathe your enemies not to love them. To, to want to harm those who hate us, not help them. The wisdom of the world says, don't take that mess. you got to stand up for yourself. got to make sure you get respect. I not somebody treat, treat you that way. you got to get even. That's the wisdom of the world. One recent um, psychology publication put it this way. Quote, Revenge is like prescription medication. A little can cure you, a lot can kill you, and you should avoid getting hooked. Like medications, it's often best if you, can do it, if you can do without it altogether, but if you must have a dose, the best approach is get even, get over it, and get on with your life. It's the wisdom of the world. Revenge seems sweet, doesn't it? Sounds sweet in the ear when somebody hurts you. You have somebody who's hurt you? Someone that you haven't forgiven? That when I say these things, their name comes to mind? There's something about wanting to see them get theirs that makes you feel like you're taking back control of your life. trying to find some, some songs that would explain this, and there's, there's some love revenge songs by Timberlake and Beyonce and CeeLo, but I had to go to the archives for some family-friendly lyrics. So we're going to go all the way back to 2005 and Carrie Underwood's debut album. Just a, a few songs after Jesus Take the Wheel, she, saw, she sings a song about getting revenge on her cheating ex-boyfriend. It goes like this. Right now, he's probably up behind her with a pool stick, showing her how to shoot a combo. And he don't know. But I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville Slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Yeah, there's a part of you that's like, get him, girl. Get him, girl. He, he had it. He had it coming, didn't he? See, vengeance and retaliation are the natural response toward those who hurt us. But Jesus says, my kingdom is different. We don't, we don't live like countries that are controlled by vendettas. Will you look at me. Well, I'm going to speak about you. You're going to speak about me? I'm going to hit you. You're going to hit me? I'm going to burn your house. You're going to burn my house? And like, the next thing you know, the whole country is just on fire. Jesus says, not so among my people. We are marked by the character of God, which is love. I just want to be very clear here. Jesus is not calling you to endure blindly in some sort of abusive situation. If you find yourself to be in an abusive situation, I want you to know that this is a safe place to let us know we want to help you. We are not the Savior, but we will help you in every way that we are able and work with the authorities to do so. We want to help you. Please. This is not a call to never defend yourself or for pure pacifism. But what this is a call to is a radical love that mirrors the love of Jesus. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those that love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Therefore, verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Jesus says, the world knows how to love their own. The mafia does that. You do good to me, I do good to you. Huh? Like that's, that's, Everybody knows how to do that. He says the kingdom of God is marked with a different banner that declares we are children of God. He loved us when we were undeserving, so we, by his strength and imperfectly, strive to love our enemies. Not to earn God's mercy, but because He has shown us mercy. I'll tell you the story relayed by a man named Richard Wormbrand. He was born in 1901. He was the founder of a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. This ministry, if you're unfamiliar with it, it it tells the stories of the persecuted Christians who, because of their love for Jesus, suffered greatly in this world. And his passion for the persecuted church sprung from his, his own experiences in a communist prison in the, the, the 40s and the, the 50s uh, when he was in Romania, where he and others who loved Jesus were brutally tortured by the communists. I want to read for you an account of this sort of love that Jesus is talking about. Rembrandt says, At my right hand, there was a priest by the name of Isku. This man, perhaps in his 40s, had been so tortured he was near to death. But his face was serene. He spoke about his hope of heaven, about his love of Christ... And about his faith. He radiated with joy. And then on my left side was the communist torturer who had tortured this priest almost to death. He had been arrested by his own comrades, and they had tortured him nearly to death. He was dying near me, and though his body was in agony, his soul was in even greater agony. During the night, He would would awaken me saying, Pastor, please pray for me. I, I can't die. I've committed such terrible crimes. He said, Then I saw a miracle. I saw the agonized priest call to two prisoners. And leaning on their shoulders, slowly, slowly, He walked past my bed. And on the bedside of his murderer, he sat and he began to caress his head. He said, I will never forget this gesture. I watched a murdered man comforting his murderer. That was love. The priest told him, If I, who am a sinner, can love you so much. Imagine Christ, who is love incarnate, how much He loves you. And all the Christians whom you have tortured know they have forgiven you. They love you, and Christ loves you. He wishes you to be saved much more than you wish to be saved. You wonder if your sins can be forgiven. He wishes to forgive you your sins more than you wish your sins to be forgiven. He desires for you to be with him in heaven much more than you wish to be in heaven with him. He is love. You only need to turn to him and repent. And according to Wormbrand, the communist torturer believed upon Christ and died of his wounds later that night, as did the priest he had tortured who had called him to trust in Christ. Now, I understand not every situation that we find ourselves in is that extreme. But there's degrees of that that are required in the Christian life nearly every day on our way home. A love where we love those who are ungrateful. Who are evil, as Jesus says here. Because... We know this, Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners doing evil against God, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus didn't wait for people to get it together before he showed them mercy. Aren't you glad, if you're a Christian, that Jesus didn't wait for you to get your stuff together before he would forgive you of your sins? It's not how it works. No, Jesus... Jesus seeks out sinners. He gives only undeserved love. That's what the cross is about. That at the cross we see an innocent one going and they're dying for the guilty and taking the death that the guilty deserved upon himself so that the guilty can receive life and pardon and go free. And as they walk, they remember how did God treat me when I was ungrateful and evil? Was He not patient with me? Was He not merciful toward me? And then by that mercy, He strengthens us to mirror that to others. Heaven's love is unnatural. It is supernatural. And it reflects the love that God has for his enemies as seen in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is what m- must mark us as well. Jesus then moves in verses 37 through 45 on the heels of reminding us the blessing isn't always as it seems and that Heaven's love is unnatural. He now calls his disciples to judge one another because judgment is coming. Judge one another because judgment is coming. Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, for the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Now, pause there for a moment. If there's one verse that everybody knows in this country and beyond, it is part of this verse right here judge not right judge, judge not and this is where I would just I just want to encourage us all to remember that we are not we're not supposed to read the bible like we do a social media feed as a bunch of disconnected ideas that are just thrown out like proverbial fortune cookies to help guide you at appropriate times that you might want to grab one and use it however you want that's not the way that the bible works The Bible all fits together. Jesus isn't teaching that we ought not judge. You're like, but he says judge not. Hold on, we're going to read the rest. Hold on. He isn't teaching that we ought not judge, but to not judge in the way that the world judges. See, you can't live in this world without making judgments about people and ideas. You can't do it. I mean, every single, you gotta, when you go to the fridge, right, and I pull out milk, and I look at the expiration date, this happened this week, you gotta make a call, right? That's a $40 thing of milk, or however much it costs these days, is three days, what could happen in three days, right? I mean, you gotta, when your my wife's like, no, you're gonna die, we're all gonna be alone, it's like, no. I think we can do it, Right? <laughs> You, you gotta make judgments all the time. You gotta do that with political claims. Which one do I trust? Well, which one do I distrust the least? I mean, you, gotta, you gotta figure that out. Sales pitches. Which one's lying to me more on this? Is Dr. Phil the same as John Piper? Because I listen to advice and they both sound strong, and I'm, do they have the same message? You've got to be able to sift through things in life. It just works that way all the time. So you can say all day long, judge not, but everybody's doing it. We're all doing it, all the time. You have to. And Jesus says it's the same way in relationships with people. So what he's going to do here, I think, is he's going to unpack three ways that we ought judge. The first here is judge others generously judge others generously Jesus is calling his disciples to remember God will deal with you in the way you've dealt with others if you're an overbearing exacting person God will be exacting with you on the day of judgment this is not karma I'm not talking about karma here at all I'm talking about a kingdom principle that goes like this a forgiven person is to be marked by generous forgiveness, not judgmental fault-finding. I'll say that again. A forgiven person is to be marked by generous forgiveness, not judgmental a spirit of judgmentalism, fault-finding. that because we know forgiveness, it must mark us. And, and he tells us here to be very careful where you take your cues from as you do this and where you get guidance. Look at verse 39. He says, he told them this parable. Can a, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. The immediate context is this, that there's the religious leaders of Jesus' day were blind guides. Why? Because they were blinded by their own self-righteousness. Their religious resume, they carried around everywhere and said, Oh, you don't fast like me, and you don't tithe like me, and you're not amazing as me. And that, that was their, their self-righteousness led to a judgmental attitude where they're consistently looking down on others and critiquing others every move. What Jesus would say to us here is we need to be very careful to whom you give your ear. Because pastors guide you, politicians guide you, artists guide you, influencers, we all have them. Who's your podcast? Who's your whatever you listen to? It affects you, it creates in you a worldview, a way to view things, reality, and people. Jesus says, Be very careful. Because the world is not going to teach you to judge others generously. It has other categories. Judge without truth. Judge based on what they, what's their own reality. There's, there's so many. That would be a great thing over lunch to talk about what are ways that the world, what are categories the world uses for, for judging that might be dangerous. This is why Christians read the Bible. Not just because you don't want to feel bad because you missed some days and you're like, oh no, now I'm behind. No, we read because we need to know what God thinks about life and about people. This is why you study the word because otherwise we get crazy. And we just start thinking wrongly about everything. This is why you need godly friends around you to help you know when you're getting crazy. I'm so thankful for friends who are around me who are like, bro, you're, you're off. You need some help. I need that. We ought remember that a day of judgment is coming so we ought to judge others generously because God judged Christ instead of us who are in Christ. Secondly, judge others humbly. Judge others humbly. Verse 41. Jesus asks, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, this is a, kind of, remember Jesus grew up in a carpenter's home. So he's, you know, why, why are you talking about a piece of sawdust in somebody else's eye when you've got a four-by-four four stuck in your own? How can you say to your brother, verse 42, let me take that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Can you imagine how difficult it would be to see with a four-by-four four trying to get somebody else? You're going to be whacking and stuff and hurting people the whole time. Because you can't see right, is what he's saying. And that's why he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. You see, before you deal with sin in other people's lives, you've got to deal with sin in your own life. This doesn't mean you have to be perfect and have everything together before you can be useful in the lives of other people. But he's talking about a, sh- a humble posture here. And it's important to remember that Jesus' strongest words were reserved for religious hypocrites. Jesus got after some religious hypocrites. He hates hypocrisy. You know what a, h- a hypocrite is, right? It's a pretender, it comes from, from the word Hippocrates, which used to describe Greek play actors. So back in the day, whenever you'd have a a play, you'd come out with one mask on and pretend to be somebody and then you'd come out with another mask and pretend to be somebody else and you'd pretend to be... The whole time you're pretending, wearing masks. He says, you don't live life... My people don't live life that way. Take your masks down. Stop pretending. The best way to do that is is to come to Christ. To see your sin that held Him there. So I hope y'all caught it. Jesus doesn't say, don't judge. He says, don't judge without first, what? Judging yourself. Don't judge without first judging yourself. Because what happens when you spend time in God's Word With him and in the context of others and you see your sin and you're confessing it, what that does to you is it produces humility and it makes you run to the cross where you see that that Christ died and He shed His blood for your lies and your deceit and for your lust and for your greed and for your jealousy and for your envy and for your gossip and your slander and your backbiting and those motives in your heart that did something that was really all about you and you pretend it was trying to be good. All that stuff that's in, that was in you. That still is in us. And we see Christ as the one who took the judgment we deserve for that. And what happens is when you are there at the cross regularly abiding there, seeing your own sin as it really is, it's very hard to look down on others when you stand in the shadow of the cross. It's very hard to do that. This is what Jesus is calling us to, to to judge others generously, to judge others humbly, and to judge others truly. Verse 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces good. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is going after another popular idea in our day. That we, you don't really know their heart. Well, their heart's good in it. Even though everything they're doing is not. While it is true that you can't ultimately know what's in someone's heart, Jesus says, you're also not totally ignorant either. And he uses the illustration of fruit here. Fruit on a tree shows what kind of tree it is. Shows the condition of the tree. You don't get figs and grapes from a briar patch, Jesus says. Jesus says here, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is utterly convicting. What you say comes from your heart. So as soon as somebody says, well, I didn't really mean that. No, actually, you did mean that. That's why you said it. Now, you may not like that you felt that way, but reality is, that's what was in your heart. When you get squeezed, what comes out of you is what's in you. Listen, y'all, when I lived in a 9,000 person oil town with three stoplights, I was the most patient driver on the planet. That was amazing. I'm happy to come to a red light, no fear there. When I moved here, uh uh, stuff starts coming out of me. Roar, you know, like, what's wrong with you? Where'd you learn how to drive? I mean, it's stuff. And, and other stuff. And I need help because what's, what's showing is my heart is impatient. It's always been that way, just circumstances exposed it. What you do is what is in your heart. So in a very real sense, and this goes against everything that you hear today, we are to be fruit inspectors. It is not loving or honest to see someone committed to living contrary to God's command and give them encouragement and assurance about their standing with God or, hey, listen, if that works for you, glad to hear it. Like, that's not loving and that's not honest. This is particularly true for God's people. That's why Jesus says in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Brothers and sisters, judgment is coming. And it is unloving to allow people to persist in deceitfulness of sin. So please, hear this. If you see me doing that, talk to me. Come after me, please. Do it generously. Do it humbly. But do it truly. I need that in my life. You need that as well. Jesus says we are to judge one another generously, humbly, and truly And you do this because judgment is coming. Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears does not do them. is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, and when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus using an illustration from everyday life in Galilee that everybody would have understood. What you don't do if you're going to build a house is just build it on the topsoil there, because what's going to happen is there's going to be a rainy season that's going to fill up the river and the stream's going to overflow and your house is going to get pummeled and washed away because that dirt, that topsoil, is going to get washed away. So rather what you need to do is you need to dig down below it to get to the rock bed. Sometimes 10 feet down to get to solid rock. There you build your house because that's going to withstand the storms. What Jesus is saying here is Don't just build your house of your life on what appears to be good. But rather there is a rock that you do not know of that is being made known to you and He calls them here to build their life upon Him. So in closing, I want to ask you this question. What do you do with the teaching of Jesus? What do you do with it? To claim to be a follower of Jesus, yet not follow His commands, is hypocrisy. A Christian is a person who has surrendered the right to say no to Jesus. We listen to Him. We obey Him in faith. And it affects our life now and the life to come. And this is, this is not talking about perfection, but this is talking about a striving in faith. He says there's two builders and two houses and two very different foundations and two similar storms that are coming and two eternally different results. You'll notice he says here, everyone who comes and hears and does, those are all in the present tense. They're ongoing. It's a pattern of life. What is the pattern of your life? Is it a consistent hearing and learning and listening and obeying Jesus? Or is it a consistent resisting and excusing and running away from Jesus? What marks your life? Are you one who would say to him, Lord, Lord, but if the fruit of your life is inspected, you would say, there's really no striving or trying toward obedience? Now again, I'm not talking about perfection here, but I'm talking about direction and faith, and are you trusting and leaning upon his, his grace? And finally, for those of you who are not following Jesus this morning, thankful that you're here, I just want to ask you what, what is it that you're building your life upon? What is it that you're looking to to give you happiness? That you are looking, looking to to give you joy and freedom? I just want you to know that it, if it's not the rock who is Christ Himself, what actually are you trusting in? For you to be able to withstand the storms in this life and the storm of the wrath of God that is to come. None can stand apart from Jesus. God has provided a refuge to build upon and to rest upon. And Jesus would say, come, build upon me in faith. Might this mark us, might we be a people who trust that blessing is not always as it seems. I would be a people whose love is so distinct and unnatural that it is curious to the world and that it would point to Christ. And there would be a people who generously and humbly and truly judge one another in a way that is life giving and liberating because it helps us to abide in Jesus all the more. Lord, help us.